0: and Welcome to Deloitte New Zealand's State of the State podcast series. I'm Dave Lovett, Deloitte's Public Sector Lead based in Wellington. In this short podcast series, we're taking a deeper look at well-being in New Zealand as part of our 2018 State of the State Thought Leadership articles. Each episode features our article authors and guests from across the public sector discussing why well-being is a hot topic right now, why it's important, and how we foster it for the benefit of all Kiwis. In this episode, I'm joined by article author, Associate Dean Dr. Michael McCauley from Victoria University of Wellington, Political Editor at Radio New Zealand Jane Patterson, and Director Lorinda Kelly from Deloitte. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. We're going to be talking about Article 7 in the series, Trust, a cornerstone of wellbeing, the building blocks for a flourishing society, which explores the issues around trust in New Zealand and how the public's perception of people and institutions can be built up to improve wellbeing for all. You can read the whole article at deloitte.com forward slash nz forward slash state of the state. Michael, I'd like to start with you. What's the relationship between trust and well-being?
1: Thanks, Dave. Well, the relationship between trust and well-being exists on a number of different levels. Uh, I think probably the two most appetite for our conversation here is the personal level uh, and the social level. On the personal level, uh, trust is essential in maintaining healthy relationships with family, friends, colleagues, co-workers, so on and so forth. And I think it's probably fairly common sense to anyone who's listening today that, in terms of their emotional uh, and their psychological health and well-being. We need to be able to trust the people that we're working with, trust the people we're in relationships with, trust them to be able to do the things that they say, trust them to be able to be reliable in their relationships with us, uh, and trust them to kind of back themselves up and back us up uh, when we need them. But on a broader level, trust and well-being are definitely connected at the social uh, and even the political and economic levels. Social cohesion is based around people being able to, on an individual and collective level, have trust in the institutions around them, trust in the political institutions, in the media institutions, uh, in their educational institutions. They need to be able to trust their neighbors, trust their communities, uh, trust, uh, again, their elders, trust the corporations, the businesses that they're working with. Not necessarily trust to get everything that they want or get everything their own way, but to operate with a degree of fairness and transparency. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that the, uh, the worldwide trust research from from all over the globe shows that we're living in a time of, of general distrust uh, and increasing distrust and although I've got no scientific uh, basis for this today uh, I think there's, there's a fairly clear relationship between uh, discord and a lack of social cohesion and growing uh, lack of trust in the major institutions of the world
0: and, and Jane what does a lack of trust look like in terms of you know how, how people react and, and respond
2: I think out it- feeds directly into the engagement process, particularly in the political sense. And when Michael was talking about the aspects of trust, even in a personal relationship, they very much relate to the political relationship as well, very much between voters and politicians, that they'll do what they say that they're going to do and have a, an amount of fairness and transparency around that. And again, in, in line with those trust um, levels dropping, we do see a lot of that because of um, pol- politicians' actions, the way that politicians have conducted themselves. And what that creates is the reluctance of voters to enter into that process to engage with politicians. And it, it becomes a bit of a catch-22 because if you're not engaged, then you're not influencing the process. So it, it really is quite an insidious um, uh, it's an insidious process for that to happen. So trust is an incredibly important and most particularly a one-way trust, the voters to the politicians and indeed the institutions that they represent and that they run in terms of the public service.
1: Mm.
0: Do, do we see people uh, Differentiating between uh, the individuals and the institutions, do they do they see that there's a difference there, or do they associate a lack of trust in individual politicians, for example, with a lack of trust in institutions like government? I,
2: I see it the other way. So I, um, and I'm probably one of the two groups, um, journalists and politicians, that come at the bottom of the the trust scales generally. But what we tend to hear is that. People say, oh politicians, you can't trust them, you know, they're a terrible bunch, but I really like my local MP or I like a minister that has been doing a particular thing. So um, what that intima- intimacy that Michael alludes to in his article I think is really important um, and that comes back to the engagement. If you're just seeing the politicians or the institutions from a distance, I do think that um, helps or, or and that doesn't enable that trust to be to be developed.
1: There's also a really interesting uh, extra level to this as well. I totally agree with what you just said there, Jay. But there's quite uh, good evidence to show that when there is a lack of trust in a person uh, or a kind of a figurehead, you do get engagement, but it can be quite negative engagement. It can be a lot of uh, dissatisfaction, protest, that kind of thing. Uh, Political disengagement tends to occur when there's a lack of trust in the system. So what we saw, for example, in the late 80s, early 90s, with the transition in democracies in Eastern Europe, you saw a lot of distrust in the ability of the system itself to cope from being uh, what was perceived to be a corrupt form of communist system into this new supposedly democratic system. And so there's a lot of withdrawal from, from the actual political processes and the votes and the elections and so on and so forth. But as those democracies have bedded in, The the trust has increased, but that's that's different to kind of distrust of specific politicians. And Jane's quite right. People tend to have a lot more faith and a lot more confidence and a lot more trust uh, where they feel there is a more personal relationship.
2: And we've seen that element too actually echoed in youth voting, so we heard that very clearly in the last election and elections before, a lot of coverage about why young people aren't voting, and it's because they don't trust the system, they don't trust that they're going to have any input or any effect on the result, so they just withdraw from it. So that can take various different forms. Absolutely.
0: Loretta, one of the the other institutions of of government are public sector organisations, public sector agencies. What what are they doing to, to address trust and confidence in what they do?
3: Yeah, what's well, interesting, there's been a real drive, I think, from the State Services Commission, from Peter Hughes, from a lot of uh, chief executives and leadership teams around the public sector to focus on integrity, trust, those wider issues, so when I have uh, traditionally done anti-fraud and corruption work, it's been quite focused, but now there's a lot more appreciation that you need the wider trust um, perspective to be addressed, and that's coming from um, from the top table down, so that there's buy-in in the whole organisation, and that's what it has to be to develop a strong culture in organisation. It has to be led by those chief executives, and I'm certainly seeing that across the public sector.
0: And to some extent, trust and and confidence and integrity are are quite abstract concepts. Mm. How how do they translate into some of the practical things that organisations can do uh, and that others uh, could pick up and start doing if they're wanting to improve trust and confidence?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, it you know as I said, it has to start at that top table. So the practical aspects of that are talking about it, the visibility. You know, um, State Services Commission launched their Speak Up um, requirements recently, um, and that is a key aspect of it as well. That that uh, if the people who work in the organisations have trust in the organisation similar to what Jane was saying about trust in the system, then they will engage, they will speak up, they will feel that that, um, their actions will be acted upon. So it it is around the communication of the values and making it safe for people and making them feel like they can trust the place that they work
2: in. From an external point of view we see that through the use of the Official Information Act and transparency. So there is quite a range in the response from different government agencies and some of them have different imperatives in terms of national security or operational or commercial security. But that is um, one way, a, a tangible way, That public sector agencies can show or demonstrate their willingness to be transparent and to want to elicit trust from um, the communities that they serve. Mm -hmm. And that is one thing, that is one way they can demonstrate that in quite a physical kind of way.
1: And just just building on that uh, as well, in, in terms of kind of community. Uh, levels of trust and and, uh, looking at the actual kind of call face where the interaction between organisations and people, whether that's a citizen or a customer or however they wish to be labelled, takes place. That's where you can actually begin to see really tangible kind of developments in terms of trust as well. Uh, And it's really interesting to note that, again, it's kind of an intimacy factor. When you see people have had a particular personal experience with, for example, the police or with some form of public service. It's the people at the face, the people who are actually interacting with, where the, the trust relationship is built, far more than it is kind of at the, the, the senior leader level, although that is clearly crucial for the organisation itself. If you're thinking about trying to develop public trust, where does the public interact with an organisation? At what stages does the public interact with the organisation? And build some kind of bridges uh, around about those interactions.
0: And, and are those those personal interactions key to growing that trust and confidence over time?
1: Yeah, with, with, without well, it's a combination, I think, of, of all the things we've been talking about. There's there's no question that leadership is absolutely crucial. But when we're talking about public sector, we have to be talking about the public. Uh, and if we're talking about trust as, as a kind of an authentic uh, way to mediate between relationships, it's, it's the public focus that always has to be uh, a kind of number one, I think, in people's minds. Mm-hmm.
0: I just want to go back to one of your points before around the, uh, the Official Information Act. I think uh, the public sector has a difficult relationship with the Official Information Act, and that's playing out at the moment. Uh, we, we've got a tension between uh, some uh, agencies and some politicians wanting agencies to be more proactive with the release of information, some tensions there in terms of what that means for agencies' ability to give free and frank advice to ministers. Uh, and canvass all of the options with the risk that that then becomes public uh, but also uh, opposition politicians actively using official information requests uh, to try and mine for information that can then be used in political attacks um, now that's whichever parties in government that dynamic kind of plays out one way or the other but how do you see that? Uh, either building or eroding trust and confidence in government?
2: I think it's crucial to um, trust in government and not just ministers in parliament, but those broader um, sector agencies. And again, we do see a variance in the way that different agencies and indeed ministers interact. Um, and I can only talk from the media point of view, but I think it's really important to remember that we are the agents of the public, so there is um, certainly an attitude within the public service that we can be vexatious, um, that some of the OAA requests are unreasonable, and there is a degree of negotiation sometimes when we don't want to be um, imposing a massive workload on the public sector just for the sake of it. So we understand that um, you know, there is certain information that we're seeking and there are different ways of dealing with that. But I think all in all there has been a greater awareness of the importance of the Official Information Act. There's been quite a lot of coverage in the last um, over the course of the last government and now this government, of course, with its open and transparent tagline, so I do think there is an awareness, A, of the importance of it and the importance of being seen to abide by it, but also in the end, it's, it's the law. Mm-hmm. So the agencies have to act within the law, and from my experience, um, they have not always acted within the letter of the law, and I think there's been a real push um, recently to make sure that they do, or at least that they're acting within the spirit of the law, which is really just as important.
0: And how how is this changing in a world where we have increasing uh, digital media um, taking a a greater share of the headlines, uh, driving a lot of the stories forward, or maybe that wasn't quite the case in the past?
2: So it's interesting because we have so much information and politicians um, have openly sort of told me that actually that's one benefit because it's almost like they can overload us with information so um, you get an OAA or you get um, a huge amount of access and sometimes it's difficult to find actually the the key information or or what you're actually looking for. In terms of the digital media itself, um, it is a real challenge for journalists, Uh, the PR industry has really bogged up and newsrooms have stripped down, so even that dynamic in itself um, makes a journalist's job harder. And the 24 hour nature of the news means that stories move on much more quickly. Um, and also, as journalists, you don't necessarily always have the time that a, a say newspaper reporter would have 20 years ago, where they had one deadline at the end of the day, so they can really give that good, considered um, attention to a story where we literally have no deadlines anymore. Um, When you get it, you publish. And so as journalists, it's um, incredibly important for us to be checking our quality, checking our accuracy, um, and not letting that pressure um, lead you to publish You know, it's something that's not accurate because, again, that comes back to trust. If we want our consumers and our audience to trust us, then we have to be putting out accurate information. But it's a real tension, there's a competitive nature, but then there's also that public interest nature of making sure that what we're saying is um, reasonable, accurate, and is actually in the public interest as well.
0: Lorinda, can can trust be used in negative ways as well?
3: Mm. Yeah, no, I was interested in the article with the comment around um, how some people can distill trust building down into a technique to advance their own interests because certainly I think. A lot of the momentum that has been going on around integrity and trust in the public sector has come about from the Joanne Harrison Fraud Investigation, which I was um, leading from the Deloitte perspective, and that was a classic example of someone very manipulative who did build up trust for their own purposes. In fact, um, I brought along the victim impacts that the Ministry of Transport has on their um, website and, and right at the near the end of it it says staff at the Ministry of Transport are motivated to serve the needs of New Zealanders like all public servants accountable for public money. They cannot do this in an environment where there is no trust and I thought that was particularly relevant to um, you know to what we are discussing today because certainly that was a key tool. That Joanne Harrison used in that environment. Are
0: there are there things that public sector organisations can do to to address those who are looking to manipulate trust?
3: Oh yeah, look, there there will always be um, people who are self-serving and will use opportunity to benefit themselves. It's but certainly there there are a lot of steps being taken to limit it and. A lot of it does go back to what I was referring to before with building up that whole culture and environment. You know, if you've got a mature integrity framework, it will be prevention-led and you will be looking at these particular tools, data analytics, all sorts of things that you can use. But a lot of it is around building up a culture where people feel safe to speak up because people in an organisation really are the best. The best tool to to help prevent and detect um, those that are manipulating others.
2: Yeah. I think that was a really interesting part of the Joanne Harrison case too, that part of the story was that people had spoken up and hadn't been yes. listened to, which enabled Joanne Harrison to carry on for quite some time, so I think Absolutely. that's actually an incredibly good example of not mm-hmm. just one person, but how um, the culture within organisation allowed it to go much further than maybe it would have if the, the whistleblowers in the first place had had been regarded.
1: Yeah. And, and you see that again at, at a much broader kind of political level authoritarian leaders Require people not to speak up and they require people to trust them one way or the other whether it's to trust them through fear of reprisal So they have to whether they like it or not or to trust them for charismatic reasons But the whole idea is is not to get questioned is not to have anyone answer back to them yeah. uh, and, and you see that now obviously in, in fairly understandable political discourse No names needed <laughs>
0: On the positive side, what are the kinds of things that we can do uh, within government, within society, uh, to positively build trust and therefore, to, you know, to contribute to greater well-being?
1: Well, I, I think there's, there's no kind of one best answer to this, mm-hmm. but I think as, as a rule of thumb, the best piece of advice anyone can, can get, I think, either on an individual or an organisational level is to be reflective. Be reflective. There is very strong uh, evidence from the psychological literature that people who don't self-reflect can get closed off to the effect and the impact that their behaviour and actions have on other people. And they can tend to perceive themselves either as victims when actually they're bullies or as successes when they're, when they're failures. And, and just in general, their own kind of general growth and, and kind of learning, it, it gets stunted. And the same is exactly the same uh, as an organisation. Lorinda, you just talked about organisational culture. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And and I think what you tend to get is a, a culture, where you get a culture that doesn't look in on itself and doesn't welcome the voices of others and doesn't welcome when people speak up and instead bury their heads in the sand, even if it's for well-intentioned purposes. If you're not willing to reflect honestly and have a look at the, the things that are going on in your organisation, then you can be very, very partial to becoming further enclosed, almost hermetically sealed, and... Uh, and you, you can just, that toxicity just grows and grows. So I think that the first thing to do as a kind of a person or an organisation is to be reflective. But the other thing is this notion of authenticity. And you've got to, again, come back to the idea of who, who do you need trust from? So where does the trust need to be? Because it's a relational value. It's not just a value in and of itself. It mediates our relationships. So you look to see where the trust needs to be built. And when you look to see and identify where that trust needs to be built and the intersections between the different people, or the different groups or individuals, that's where you can start to build really kind of positive relationships to to up the ante and increase trust.
2: I think building on that slightly is also being open to different ideas, and um, part of that is reflection, but part of it is also be willing to really engage with people whom you violently disagree with. And Mm -hmm. I'm speaking probably more in a political kind of context, but we have seen it. In the States um, and in, in domestic politics, when people become very closed off to other people's ideas, it becomes very tribal, it becomes very partisan. And I think that's when members of the public or, or people who aren't really fully engaged in the political process see it and think, I just don't want to be part of that. It's nasty, it, it brings out um, sort of traits that maybe um, are not. Uh, trust building, and I think that's incredibly important, especially in the in, in the era when we do have so many different forms of information, sometimes that does lead people actually just to retreat a little bit because th- there is so much to deal with, but I, I think it's very important that, that people remain open-minded to, to different views and different perspectives.
0: And Lorinda, any, any thoughts in terms of building trust positively?
3: Yeah, well, I, do, I definitely agree with what Michael and Jane have said and I think just building on that self-reflection aspect from an organisational perspective, one of the things I see is people don't necessarily reflect enough on their organisation and they think there's no issues, we're, we're fine, we don't need to be worried about this and it's a bit of the whole head in the sand aspect and you know in New Zealand we're all very clean and we do things right and we don't need to worry Um, if there's nothing rising to the surface if there's nothing coming to your attention well you're probably not asking the right questions and maybe there is an issue with people not feeling comfortable and speaking up so I think that has to be part of that reflection aspect.
0: Well, thank you for your thoughts about trust and well-being. I think that's just about all we have time for in this episode. Thanks again to our guests, Dr. Michael McCauley, Jane Patterson, and Lorinda Kelly. I do encourage you to check out the article we've discussed, and indeed the whole series, on our deloitte.co.nz website. Why not share your thoughts on what we discussed today, and on well-being more generally with us on Twitter, at DeloitteNZ, or on LinkedIn. Don't forget the hashtag stateofthestateNZ.
2: Thanks for listening.